You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, and with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. My guest today is Juan Carlos Zarate. Uh, Juan served as Deputy Assistant to the President and Deputy National Security Advisor on the NSC for counterterrorism from 2005 to 2009. He had also served as First Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for terrorist financing and financial crimes. And he's currently a Senior Advisor to the Center for Strategic and International Studies and a National Security Consultant and Analyst for CBS News. Uh, Juan, welcome to the program. Thank you, Peter. I appreciate okay. being here. You've had a very rich background in dealing with terrorism, which is, uh, and specifically the financing of it and tracking financial crimes. Uh, this is very much on our minds today because of the, uh, I should say, heated discussion that's ensuing now about our commitment in Afghanistan, whether it can be sustained, whether we need to change strategy. And I think one of the core questions there is, what is the state of al-Qaeda? Um, we read, uh, of course, al-Qaeda puts out its videos and so forth. Uh, we read about numbers of al-Qaeda leaders uh, killed or captured by these uh, efforts by specifically CIA and special forces uh, in uh, the PAC-AF or AF-PAC area. What is your, your sense of the uh, robustness or status of al-Qaeda. Peter, I couldn't agree with you more. This is a critical time to be discussing this because I think much of the debate and the confusion uh, that surrounds what we should be doing in Afghanistan is a confusion as to what, uh, what we're doing, not only in theater, but also who are we fighting and what is al-Qaeda at this point. Um, I happen to think that al-Qaeda is greatly diminished from what it once was, that it's an organization on its heels, not only because of the tactical successes and pressure um, that, uh, that it's had to sustain, but because of uh, the moral uh, and ideological challenges coming to it as an organization uh, from within its own ranks. Uh, 
Uh, and so this is an organization that is losing its key leadership at a pace that it hasn't seen since the early days of the invasion of Afghanistan. Uh, at a time when its ability to uh, reach out globally is greatly diminished, and when uh, people of, of all uh, ideological stripes within Muslim communities around, around the world are questioning what al-Qaeda has done for the Muslim world and whether or not its agenda is actually effective. And so I think it's important to keep in mind that al-Qaeda as we've known it is greatly diminished. That said, the terrorist threat uh, is is not gone. Uh, and in fact, what we're seeing is, I think, an evolution of the terrorist threat that is made up of a looser alliance of localized uh, terrorist groups and insurgencies that have the potential to tie globally. But if uh, we do our job properly in terms of counterterrorism work, are actually uh, more manageable problems and less strategically relevant. And I think that to a certain extent, is what is at play in the Afghan context, because uh, we hear the president and others talk about the core element of our strategy, the core objective being the disruption and dismantlement of al-Qaeda. Well, I think most experts would say, and I think we've seen it with uh, the report that just came out from General McChrystal, uh, that al-Qaeda, frankly, is not a central protagonist in Afghanistan per se. Um, no doubt we don't want there to be chaos or safe haven that al-Qaeda can take advantage of. But what we're seeing on the ground in, Al in, in Afghanistan is uh, a battle against local insurgencies that have allegiances, perhaps alliances or relationships with al-Qaeda, but which are not al-Qaeda. Uh, and we need to keep that in mind because the core al-Qaeda that remains uh, is on the other side of the border, largely in Pakistan, where we've seen a lot of the uh, attacks that you referenced, uh, as well as, frankly, in custody in Iran, uh, where in 2003-2004, the Iranian government took a number of the key senior leadership of al-Qaeda who were in Iran into custody. And so I think al-Qaeda is on its heels. What it once was is, uh, uh, is, is long gone in terms of the history of the movement. It's still potentially dangerous. Uh, but the threat that we're facing moving forward, and including Afghanistan, is a different kind of terrorist threat than what we faced before 9-11 and immediately after. I think what's partially confusing for the public and me to an extent is, if you will, separating al-Qaeda from the Taliban. And, uh, you know, we are hearing from General McChrystal's uh, uh, reports, you know, that the Taliban has actually gained strength, uh, has... Uh, is holding courts in the country and has shadow provincial governors and so forth. To what extent is the Taliban's, to what extent would the Taliban succeeding in Afghanistan, would that not provide a, a host for al-Qaeda as it did in the past? Wouldn't al-Qaeda be able to, as it were, move back from Pakistan and set up its headquarters right in the heart of the Taliban? Al-Qaeda very well could, and it could benefit from chaos and safe haven and would no doubt try to do that. That said, the Taliban itself, uh, the, the local uh, manifestation of this insurgency and the militancy, is very different from the Saudi-Egyptian-led global movement that Al-Qaeda represents, or at least represented in the past. That's a very different phenomenon, because the Taliban, both in Afghanistan and Pakistan, are focused largely on local issues. 
they want to impose Sharia law or their brand of it on uh, on uh, the local population. They want to suppress the rights that have started to emerge with respect to women, uh, women's rights, and uh, children going to school. And so they they've got a very different agenda, and it's largely not global in dimension the way Al Qaeda is. Now the problem, as you've identified, is there's a, a mishmash of these groups. Uh, there's a fluidity between them where it's, it grows difficult to distinguish both in the field and in, uh, in strategy the difference between Al-Qaeda and Taliban or Al-Qaeda and the IJU, uh, the Islamic Jihad Union in Central Asia, or uh, the East Turkmenistan Islamic Movement out of Western China, when perhaps they're training together, perhaps operating together, uh, and perhaps strategizing together. So it's, it's a very difficult problem. That said, I think we need to be disciplined about how we analyze what's happening because uh, what's happening on the ground in some of these places, to include places like Somalia and Yemen, may not necessarily be part of uh, a global uh, threat or challenge to the United States. But as you indicated, Al-Qaeda or its uh, allies could very well take advantage of some of these local grievances. Our job, I think, is to make sure that al-Qaeda is diminished, that it doesn't have that global reach to be able then to leverage these local grievances and insurgencies, and then to suppress the ability of these insurgencies to themselves evolve into global threats. Uh, and again, I think that's where we are in Afghanistan, because uh, al-Qaeda, at least on the ground, is not the central protagonist to what's happening. Clearly the Taliban is, and Hekmatyar. And, and others, uh, other networks that have ties and historical roots uh, and connections to al-Qaeda. They're there. Uh, but it's not al-Qaeda as we know it. When you, let me just back up for one minute. When you mentioned the Saudi and Egyptian-led uh, al-Qaeda, I'm assuming that in Egyptian-led, you're referring to the Muslim Brotherhood, and in the case of the Saudis, you're not referring to the government. No, no, I, I'm referring or to... Or am I misreading that? No, no, I, and I apologize for that shorthand. I'm referring to the core um, ideological and strategic leadership of al-Qaeda, which has uh, traditionally come from Saudi individuals and Egyptian individuals. The merger of al-Qaeda and EIJ uh, out of Egypt... Uh, which then led Ayman al-Zawahiri, Dr. Zawahiri, to become yes, the number yes. two in the organization. <clears throat> and then obviously Osama bin Laden, who is the Saudi um, uh, financier who became the, the leader of the organization. The, the core ideological and strategic center of gravity for al-Qaeda has always been the Egyptians and the Saudis. Uh, the number three in al-Qaeda, uh, Sheikh Saeed al-Masri, is an Egyptian accountant, uh, associate of Zawahiri, longstanding. He runs the financing. Uh, and the budget, uh, and some of the operations for al-Qaeda. Um, and so if you look at how al-Qaeda has evolved, it's always been Saudis and Egyptians that have run the show. The, uh, you, you just mentioned financing, which is something that you have specialized in uh, when you were with the Treasury Department, and certainly you would have uh, kept track of it as well when you were in the uh, National Security mm -hmm. Council. Um, I, I'm assuming that being able to track the finances is a powerful weapon uh, but I'm also thinking that the, uh, the Muslim world is very good at moving money, uh, not through normal banking systems, but just by, by, by virtual trust. In fact, there's a name for their system of, of money exchanges. That's right. It's Hawala and, yes, and Hundi, yes, Tawala, yeah, which, depending on what region of the world you're in. Right, right. which, which is, uh, simply doesn't go through normal banking systems right. and, and transactions aren't visible as they would be 
for perhaps a, another kind of terrorist movement. Right. Well, you've identified one of the central challenges in terms of uh, disrupting the financing of terrorist groups and of actual attacks, and that is that there are multiple ways to both raise and move money. Um, and in parts of the world like sub-Saharan Africa or East Africa, even the Gulf and Central Asia, uh, where you don't necessarily have a developed banking system or it's not uh, the reach is not as far as, for example, in Western societies, you have alternate ways of moving money, moving value. Um, things like the Hawal system, which is based on trust between brokers, in essence, uh, who are able to move uh, money, sometimes in vast quantities, actually, uh, across borders without a wire transfer, a bank account, or the, the common modalities you would assume in a Western economy. Um, and they eventually settle their accounts. These are brokers that have trust between each other, the businessmen. Um, so they often have records, uh, and they often keep good records, which is often uh, misunderstood. Sometimes people think there aren't records and things, but there are. Um, but uh, to, to the larger point, uh, terrorist financing, uh, especially after 9-11, became almost a boutique industry, um, with the intelligence community beginning to focus on issues of financial flows much more aggressively, even... Uh, starting a new term in the intelligence community called financial intelligence, FININT, uh, which is a, a new discipline that's emerged in the CIA, NSA, and other parts of the intelligence community, uh, as well as in the Treasury Department. The first ever Office of Intelligence and Analysis in a finance ministry in the world was established in the Treasury uh, in, in 2004. And so you have a much greater emphasis on looking at financial flows and trying to track those flows. In the first instance, to uncover networks of concern. Secondly, to try to disrupt what may be transpiring in the context of attacks or uh, the, the organization itself trying to build itself up or alliances. Um, and I'd, I'd like to think as well, and I think this is the grand importance of, of the terrorist financing campaign, trying to restrict the ability of groups like Al-Qaeda to actually have the budget to do things that are more globally and strategically relevant. Uh, often hear the complaint, and I heard this ad nauseum in my former jobs, that uh, we're wasting our time in dealing with terrorist financing. The worst terrorist attack, 9-11, only cost half a million dollars. Uh, the attacks in Bali, Madrid, uh, Casablanca, all the other places you can imagine, only cost a few thousand dollars, if that. Um, and my response to that is, um, you engage uh, in the terrorist financing campaign in part to stop attacks, no doubt, and in part to understand and uncover networks and financial and money trails, absolutely. But at its highest order, what you're trying to do is to strategically affect the calculus of the enemy. You want to restrict their ability to pay for training, to sustain their infrastructure, to pay bribes uh, to government officials, to be able to pay for allegiances with regional groups, um, to then be able to also invest in long-term programs. People forget before 9-11, Al-Qaeda was developing uh, an anthrax program and a nuclear program. And so at the end of the day, uh, the terrorist financing campaign, in my mind, is a strategic tool to force Al-Qaeda to make hard budget decisions. Uh, and I want them to, be, uh, to have to pay for family members of Al-Qaeda in the first instance versus developing a nuclear program by paying some Pakistani scientists. Uh, and I think at the end of the day, that's the great value of a terrorist financing campaign. Let me uh, ask you a very general question. Are you, with your view, 
really a very bird's eye view of, of uh, terror financing, uh, terrorist movements and so forth. Are you seeing more uh, linkages, transactions on a global basis between uh, organized criminal groups, terrorists, drug dealers, human traffickers and so forth? I mean, in other words, with the globalization of our economies and, and so forth, are you also seeing more uh, interaction between those kinds of groups, given that they all are seeking to do things uh, under the table, nefarious things? You raise a great issue and one of uh, deep import to the intelligence community as well as the law enforcement community and, and the policy world. Um, and I think the great nightmare is uh, seeing uh, an evolution where you have an allegiance between transnational actors that have the infrastructure to operate internationally, to move people, move money, move goods, uh, tied then to a terrorist agenda. And so, you know, the worst uh, case scenario and the, and the nightmare scenario for folks is seeing an international organized crime group or a smuggling network uh, engaged in the smuggling of some uh, radiological material or a nuclear device in the, in the worst case. Um, and engaging in, in a deal, in essence, both to provide the material and maybe to move it on behalf of an organization. Again, this goes back to the financing then. What you, what you hope to do is to restrict the ability of a terrorist organization to actually have the wherewithal and the money to pay such individuals to do this, in part because such criminals are motivated by profit often more than ideology. Um, but I think you're right. I think uh, a great challenge for the intelligence world um, and responsible states is trying to find ways to ensure that those links don't emerge because uh, there's no question that you've seen groups like Hezbollah uh, engage in global narcotics activity. Uh, there are other groups that, that uh, have started to play footsie with each other. And you also have uh, what I would call the rogue states um, sometimes uh, playing too close uh, to the edge with some of these transnational actors. Clearly Iran, which sponsors Hezbollah, Hamas, Pidge, uh, and others. Uh, but you're starting to see, for example, a relationship develop that is a bit uncomfortable between Iran and Venezuela. Um, and so one needs to then worry about drug trafficking networks uh, the Venezuelan state and groups like Hezbollah perhaps uh, joining in some allegiance of convenience. Let me uh, uh, just ask you something that, that sort of jumped out in looking at your background, and that is you were uh, actively involved in uh, looking for the, the money that uh, Saddam Hussein uh, allegedly accumulated uh, by the billions and uh, trying to, as the phrase goes today, claw back some of that for either the country of, of Iraq or, or uh, for the United States in some cases. Could you just comment on that? I would love to. It was um, an interesting moment. I was at the Treasury Department when um, the decision was made to go into Iraq, and the mission uh, was given to Secretary Snow at that point um, by the President to make sure that we were doing everything possible to find Iraqi assets, freeze them, and then have them ultimately return to Iraq for the use of rebuilding the country and generally for the, for the people of Iraq. So my job uh, on behalf of Secretary Snow and on behalf of the government was to organize a small team, it was small, <laughs> to uh, go out and work diplomatically and through law enforcement and intelligence channels uh, and given information we were finding in Iraq itself uh, to determine where it was that Iraq had assets outside of Iraq 
where it was that Saddam Hussein may have kept accounts, where his family or his cronies may have kept accounts, um, and to do our best to freeze those assets at a minimum and maximally uh, have them uh, return to, to Iraq. Um, it was a journey that took took us through uh, throughout the world, uh, you know, Asia, Europe, uh, the Middle East. Uh, I was able to, to travel. I met uh, former Prime Minister Rafiq Hariri uh, to talk about these issues because uh, Iraq and Saddam had assets in Lebanese banks, um, and it was a, a remarkable time. And the people with whom I worked did great, great work. And in fact, uh, I think it was probably the last point at which there was uh, some semblance of cooperation with the Syrian government. The Syrian government actually allowed us to send agents in to look at some of the bank accounts uh, of uh, Iraqi dealings with Syria, uh, which un unveiled uh, over a billion dollars of financial activity, uh, which we, at the end of the day, couldn't finally trace. We couldn't find what happened to, to most of that money. So, but I believe there was an amount or a figure that, uh, that uh, has been referred to in terms of, of the money that was uh, uh, at least, uh, I think, retrieved for the United States, for our, for our country. Well, Is that correct? Well, we, all of the money that was retrieved per the UN Security Council yes. resolution that set up the framework for this um, was returned to, the, to Iraq. Now, to the it, state it, it Iraq. Was at the, yeah. It was at the point where we had the, uh, the CPA, the uh, Coalition Provisional Authority, in place. Yes, yes. And so a lot of it went to reconstruction and other, other efforts. Um, but yes, we looked uh, we looked far and, and wide, and we found uh, over three billion dollars uh, in assets, uh, some state uh, run, some individually controlled, um, and there's still more out there. It's actually something I've been encouraging from the private sector, the Iraqi government, to continue to go after some of these funds that are either not frozen or frozen and not yet returned. Uh, and uh, and they need them. Some of the best cases actually were hard assets, uh, you know, uh, aging ships and uh, and planes that needed to be retrofitted before they could uh, be sent back. So we had to find them, find a way of legally getting them uh, frozen or or attached, and then getting them repaired and sent back to Iraq. And that that was quite a fun endeavor. <laughs> well, you're you're sort of the personification of, and I've forgotten who said it, but find the, chase the money, follow the money. That's right. And who was it who said that? Uh, well, I think Elliot Ness made it popular as a, okay, as a tactic uh, <laughs> okay. in terms of going after the bad guys, but finding the weak link of the of the money okay. uh, to be able to. And to, very last, very last question: Do you think that this uh, approach in trying to strangle Al Qaeda, let's say, you know, with finances and resource, do you think that has contributed to its setback? I, I think absolutely, okay. I, and I think it has been an important part of. Uh, ensuring that al-Qaeda's global reach is, has not been as effective uh, or as lethal as possible. I think uh, people need to recall that um, both in uncovering financial trails as well as in constricting the budget of al-Qaeda, uh, we've done quite a bit in actually thwarting attacks and thwarting their ability to, to forge these regional alliances that I think haven't come to fruition the way al-Qaeda has wanted. So I think that's been a part of it. Good. Well, that's good to hear. Last question. What do you perceive from, again, from you've had a unique uh, perch, as it were, in the approach to dealing with terrorism by these successive administrations, that it, the Obama administration, before that, the Bush administration? Well, I, I actually started <clears throat> arguing soon after I left that what we were likely to see was fundamental continuity in our counterterrorism policy. Now, 
that didn't seem to match with what we were seeing in the in the news at that point with respect to the executive order to close Guantanamo, the executive orders with respect to detention and interrogation policies. Uh, but what I saw and what I was privileged to see, having been at the NSC in the White House from 2005-2009, was a clear evolution of our counterterrorism policy. The things that we were doing um, out of necessity or otherwise after 9-11 to gain a better intelligence picture of al-Qaeda, to build up defenses against another attack which everyone thought was coming the very next day, um, those things um, were were important at the start, but they started to evolve, and they uh, started to fall away to a certain extent. And people forgot that President Bush said he wanted to close Guantanamo and reduce the number from 800 to 247 by the time he left office. He, he also closed the CIA prisons, leaving open the possibility of using them, but in 2006 transferred all of those individuals into Guantanamo. He started the military commissions process. Uh, to give further due process mm -hmm. to individuals. Um, in, ter in terms of interrogation policy, uh, Director Hayden said the last time waterboarding was used was in 03 and was only used three, uh, on three individuals. And so um, I'm not here to argue the, the merits sure. of that, but I, <laughs> I do think what, what has been lost is what has happened in terms of the evolution of our policy and a more nuanced policy as a result of the things that we were able to do early on to disrupt and dismantle al-Qaeda. And so what I, when I look at what President Obama is doing, uh, it's no surprise to me that he is continuing with preventive detention, uh, no surprise to me that he's continuing with the military commissions, that he's uh, supporting renewal of the Patriot Act, uh, that he's continuing fairly aggressive uh, kinetic activities in Pakistan, and we saw a recent raid from our special forces in Somalia, you know, uh, a preventive um, uh, set of arrests here in New York and Denver. Uh, just recently. Um, all of that, in my mind, is the nuts and bolts of counterterrorism work. And in my mind, it's, it's the kind of work that is continuing apace. These other issues are important issues, uh, but they're issues that can be largely handled um, the way they're being handled because of where we are in the war on terror and because we feel actually more secure uh, with respect to al-Qaeda and what we know about it. Good. Okay. Well, Juan Carlos Zarate, thank you so much for joining us today. I think uh, this has been very, uh, very enlightening, and it comes at a time when uh, there's a lot of focus on this and just what uh, where Al Qaeda is and and what we need to do to keep our focus on it. As the present administration has said, thank you so much again. Thank you, Peter. I appreciate it. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you. And uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you. Hey, all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.